0: Uh, hi. So, as Micah said, for those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Anthony, a uh, regular person here, attender at the church. Uh, typically, you won't see me when I'm here because I'm lurking in that sound booth behind you. Uh, I love the AV ministry partially because I'm a tech geek and partially because if you're doing your job really well, nobody knows you exist. And I, that's, that fits me. So, And yet, here I am. up in front of everybody, so there you go. Um, so yes, uh, Pastor Dan's not here, obviously. Here I am. Uh, he asked me to teach, and this is the second time I've done a Sunday. Uh, it's both exciting and terrifying, which I think, well, that's sort of like ministry in general, right, sometimes, right? The way God does things, exciting and terrifying. And when I had originally taught, a few months ago, um, I taught something based on what God had kind of been showing me in my own life. Uh, Just the, he really laid on my heart the need for unity in his church with one another, right? Um, I don't think it's stretched to look outside and see how disunified the world is and know that the only answer is unity within his body, So, uh, I originally taught the second chapter of Ephesians, the second half of it, where Paul goes into depth about that. And so today we're actually going to continue that. And we're going to start in chapter 3 and do the first 13 verses of chapter 3. So, I've titled this message, for what it's worth, The Mystery of the Body of Christ. So,. Um, a mystery is a secret in the Bible, okay? That's that's another term for it. And there are a lot of different types of secrets talked about in the Bible. Um, some are things that God alone knows and he reveals to nobody. For example, Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things belong to the Lord, okay? So there's some things that he knows and only he knows and for whatever reason in his Amazing wisdom, he has not chosen to share those things with us. Okay? There are also secrets that God has revealed to specific people at specific times. Uh, think the prophets, for example. It's a really good um, example of God revealing things to people at the right time. And then lastly, there are also secrets that God did not mention anywhere or to anyone ever, and yet reveals them now in the church age, right the time after Christ's resurrection. This is what the New Testament refers to as mysteries. Okay, Truths never before revealed, finally revealed in the New Testament. So that is what we're going to be looking at today. So when we pick up in Ephesians 3, Paul has just finished his teaching, in Ephesians 2, that the church would be made up of Jew and Gentile, Greek and barbarian, male and female, and that everyone would be one in Jesus Christ, that there would be no difference between any of them, and that they would all be equal. Now, for us, 2,000 years removed from the time and the place where this was written, this doesn't seem like a big deal to us. However, this was actually a revolutionary statement to make. Um, To give you guys a little bit of context, if you were to look at the teachings of Jewish teachers around the time the New Testament was written, you will read things like this. Gentiles were created by God to be kindling for the fires of hell. And it was also taught that if you were to come across a Gentile woman in birth pain, right, like on the side of the road about to give birth, you were not allowed to help her. Because if you helped her, you would be responsible for bringing a Gentile into this world. And that was a bad thing. So this is the mindset that the Jews had for the Gentiles. And for their part, the Gentiles felt the exact same way. They saw the Jewish nation as a nation of slaves whose only purpose was to be dominated, barely human, barely able to have any sort of cognitive thought at all. This is how the Jews thought about the Gentiles and how the Gentiles thought about the Jews. So into this, thousands of years of generational hatred comes Christ into the church. And now all of a sudden, the church is converting Jews, and it's converting Gentiles, and they've got to somehow figure out how to get along in this new era. So Paul teaches that everyone is one in Christ, and that everyone is equal, and the Jews never saw anything like that coming. Okay? Okay. There were, which is not to say that they didn't know anything. Okay, There were some things that the Jews did know from the Old Testament. For example, they did understand something about Gentile salvation. So let's quickly take a look at Isaiah. We're going to be in chapter 49. Okay. So we're going to read verse 6 really quickly. It says, indeed he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Okay? So despite all of Sort of cultural hatred between the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews understood on some level that God had plans of salvation for the Jews, okay? They understood that in some way the Gentiles were going to participate in the kingdom as well and that God had some plans of grace for them. We're going to look really quickly at Genesis 22 18, a very well known promise that he made. To Abraham, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. All the nations of the earth. So the Jews understood to some extent that they would play some part in the kingdom, that God had grace for them as well, and that God was going to bring about good things for the Gentiles as well. But despite that, they had no idea that they would be one and that they would be spiritually equal before God. They did not understand that and can we really blame them? They were the people who had the covenants. We just looked at one. They were the ones that had the promises from God. They were the ones that God gave the prophets to. He gave the law to. They had thousands of years of history worshiping this God whereas these Gentiles not only did not worship God, but worship things that were sometimes specifically anti-God, right? And yet, here they are thrown into a church together, and Paul's expecting them to believe that they're equal to one another spiritually. It's a pretty tall order for them to accept, okay? So the church age wasn't something that the Jews expected at all. They basically expected the Messiah to show up and for him to immediately set up his kingdom. And in fact, if you look at Acts 1-6, the apostles were still confused about this post-resurrection. So Acts chapter 1-6 verse 6 says, Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So even then they still weren't exactly sure what the plans were. These men who had known Christ the best of anybody alive, they'd spent years sitting at his feet, and they still weren't exactly sure what was going to happen with regards to the church going forward. So, the book of Ephesians is written partially to explain the body of Christ, right? how we become a member of the body of Christ, how we are one in Jesus Christ and ultimately what that means in practice. If you want to divide the book of Ephesians up by theme, roughly, you can do so this way. Chapters one through three talk about the position of the believer in the body, or if you will, the theology of the church, right? How does the church function? What does it look like? And then chapters four to six, the practice of the believer in the body. So great. I'm a believer, now what, right? That's chapters four through six. So where we're at in chapter three, Paul has just explained the core theology about the church and its oneness in Christ, right? We, we call it chapter three, where we're gonna start today, but obviously for him, when he wrote that, none of those things existed. He's just continuing the thought that he just completed in chapter two. And as we Enter into chapter 3. Paul is about to do what all good Bible teachers do. I've taught you something, and I'm going to pray for you, that you receive it, and that you make it real in your life. But as he's about to pray, it's almost as if he has this moment where he distracts himself from this prayer that he's about to get, begin, as if he really wants to make sure that we get the message. So he's going to interrupt his own prayer and immediately go over like one more time, like, guys, it's super important that you get this, please. And so he's going to make a quick detour to explain everything to them again, and that's this entire section we're looking at today. It's an aside from the prayer that he's about to pray. So let's quickly read the first 13 verses of Ephesians 3, and then we'll pray. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner Of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. Verse 8. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart in my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you today um, sorely in need of your hand in our lives, Lord. We are vessels of clay, Lord. We are easily broken. Uh, we are not of much value, Lord. But you, you are of exceeding worth, Lord. You are unspeakably kind on our behalf. And so we just ask you to please fill us with your spirit, Lord. Just bless our time together, Lord, as we just look into this word that you've provided for us, that you preserve throughout the ages, Lord. We just thank you. Help us to not take your word for granted, Lord, but to be thirsty for it. So we just ask your blessing on our time together today. As we seek your wisdom, Lord, as we seek what you would have for us in this moment, Lord, we just thank you that your work for us never ends, that despite turning from the path A hundred times, Lord, you always guide us back to the things that are true, things that are important. So, Lord, we just look forward to what you have for us in this moment, and we just stand before you in awe and worship you, Lord. Thank you so much for everything you do for us, and we just pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Okay. So, starting in verse one of Ephesians chapter three. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles. So, if you'll notice, verse 1 starts with, for this reason. That is the beginning of Paul's prayer that he's about to do. And that's, that's all you get to hear for another 13 verses. If you look, scan down to verse 14... You'll see verse 14 starts with, for this reason, again. So this is where Paul picks back up on the prayer that he meant to pray. But it's applicable here. So for this reason, what reason? Paul's continuing a thought that he's already had. So what he's talking about in this, for this reason, that reason is what he just taught us in chapter 2. And I'm going to go through quickly, hit the highlights for you. Chapter 2, verse 15, that Jews and Gentiles are one new man. Verse 16, that they are one body. And verse 17, those who were far off have been made near. Meaning specifically the Gentiles who were far off. That's an illusion of the temple. We'll go over that later. Verse 18, that both Jews and Gentiles have access by one spirit. Verse 19, that they are fellow citizens and of the household of God. Verse 20, that they both are built on the foundation of prophets and apostles. Verse 21, that both Jews and Gentiles are a building that grows together to a holy temple. And verse 22, that they are built together for a habitation of God. So these are the things. For this reason, because of our unity as a body, for these, for this reason, I, Paul, prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles. So Paul calls himself a prisoner of Christ Jesus, um, and the reason for that is because when he wrote Ephesians, he was in prison. It's pretty simple. Uh, This is one of the prison epistles. By the time he had been writing Ephesians, he had been in prison for about five years at this point. So this wasn't the normal type of prison that we see other places in the Bible. This was what was known as house arrest, essentially. He was living in Rome at the time, and he rented a house, and he was able to kind of just move around freely in that house, except for one thing. He was shackled by the leg to a Roman soldier all day, every day. And then, obviously, that soldier would change depending on who, uh, you know, just normal shifts. Which, for Paul, who was an evangelist, was probably a pretty sweet deal for him. Like, this guy can't get away. He's got to listen to everything I say. I could preach the gospel to this guy all day long. He can't get away. But, obviously... While he had a significant amount of freedom to a normal prisoner, he was still uh, shackled and stuck where he was. So why was Paul in prison? So we are going to take a look at the events from the Bible that led Paul to being arrested and put in prison. So we're going to jump through a couple books, discuss it, and then come back here. So first place we're going to look is Romans 15. And we're going to be looking at verses 25 through 27. Okay. Let me read those really quickly for us. But now, I am going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints. For it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. It pleased them indeed and they are their debtors. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. This is a pretty straightforward thing. Paul's getting ready to visit Jerusalem, and the Gentiles feel an obligation to help out the Jewish believers in Jerusalem, right? The Gentiles have spiritually benefited from the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. Obviously, God was the people of the Jews. The Messiah came through the Jews. The gospel was preached first among the Jews, and now it's finally made, their, made its way to the Gentiles, and they've benefited from that greatly. They're believers, and now they've benefited from it. And so now they thought the least they could do was contribute to the material welfare of the poor believers in Jerusalem, which is essentially all of them, right? Uh, in that culture the Jews find out that you're a Christian and you're essentially exorcised from society, right? It was, it was a pretty big deal. So, next, Paul actually shows up in Jerusalem with those gifts for the Jewish believers and he hands them over to the church there. So, we're going to jump over to Acts now. We're going to be in chapter 21 of Acts and we are going to look at what happened when Paul came to Jerusalem. Okay, so starting in verse 17. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. When he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord, and they said to him, You see, brother, How many myriads of Jews there are who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow, Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. So, Paul shows up in Jerusalem. He hands over the goods to the Jewish church. He's building bridges between these two groups, right? Obviously, we can see that's one of the main focuses of his ministry. And he gets there, and he tells in details a thing which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So he's always thinking about how to bring these two groups together, right? But as soon as he finished, they said, Hey, we got a problem. Uh, We need you to do something extra-Jewish right now to show that you're not actually against Moses or the law as people are saying that you are. And so Paul actually agrees to do this. Okay, So pick it back up in verse 26 of Acts 21. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. Now, when the seven days we almost ended. The Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him, In the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. So, do you see what's happening here? So, first off, why do you think, and this is a question you can't answer, sometimes it's all rhetorical up here, but I'll accept an answer. Why do you think that the writer of Acts chose to point out that the Jews that stirred up this trouble were specifically from Asia? Okay, I don't like talking in the middle of church either. It's fine. Where was Paul teaching? He was preaching all over Asia. That's the main area that he was in. So these Jews would have been well familiar with who Paul was and the things he taught, or at least the things they thought he was teaching. So here these Jews are in Asia. This guy shows up. He starts preaching to the Jews, and then among the Gentiles... They start seeing conversions happening. Starts building churches in the areas. These churches have both Jewish and Gentile believers in them. And at the same time, they start having problems between those Jewish and the Gentile believers. Because the Jewish believers are trying to force the Gentiles to follow the law. So by this time in Acts, where we're at in the timeline, the book of Galatians has already been written. And so the Galatians have gotten this. And if any of you guys are familiar with the book of Galatians, you'll know that one of the main points of the book of Galatians was the struggles internally for the church between the Jewish believers who were trying to force the Gentiles to follow the law and the teachings of grace that Paul was trying to get across to them. So... you can kind of see why these Jews might be upset, right? If these Gentiles who do not follow the law are equal with the Jews who have and do follow the law, then what does that say about the law itself? That it's nothing, right? That it doesn't matter. And that was not something these guys were already here. Now obviously we know the law served a very specific purpose, That purpose was fulfilled with Christ. So it wasn't that the law meant nothing. It's just that the time for the law had come and gone. God had fulfilled the law perfectly in Christ. But these Jews obviously didn't believe that. And they observed all of this in the areas that they lived. And so they knew who Paul was by this time. And at least what their perception of what he was teaching was. The last thing I'll point out from this section is... Verse 29, it's interesting because they thought that Paul was so against Moses, so against the law, that the simple fact that he was just seen in town with a Gentile days before meant that he had brought that Gentile into the temple to defile it, which is silly on its face, but it's also absurd. I don't know if any of you guys are familiar with the way the temple worked, but um, if you can imagine a square being the temple itself, and then concentric squares radiating out from that, there was something called the Court of the Gentiles. And the Court of the Gentiles was as far physically away from the temple as you could possibly be while still being on the temple grounds. So the very outer edge of the temple grounds was the Court of the Gentiles. Gentiles were not allowed any further in. There were temple guards who guarded these other areas of the temple to make sure nobody that wasn't supposed to be there got in because they don't want to defile the place. They would have killed anybody who tried to make their way any deeper. So the fact that these Jews accused Paul of bringing a Gentile into the temple, not only incorrect, but also absurd. The temple guards would have never allowed anything like that to happen. So... They make these accusations, the crowd's in a panic, mob rule, they surround Paul, and they begin beating him, with the intention of beating him to death. So as they're doing that, a garrison commander shows up and saves Paul's life, essentially, breaks up the mob, what's going on here, and ultimately he chooses to arrest Paul, which is probably to his benefit, who knows if he would have made it out of there without an armed escort, so I guess being arrested is as good a way as any, right? And so what follows after that arrest is imprisonment that by the time he's written Ephesians has lasted for five years. Different governors in Judea and Israel held him as a favor of the Jews. Didn't release him, even though they all knew that he was innocent of what they said he was doing. And eventually... Paul chooses to repeal his case, or appeal his case, excuse me, to Caesar himself. Because he was a Roman citizen, he had that right. And so then, they put him in on a boat, sent him to Rome, which, if you just continue reading the book of Acts, you will see what a harrowing journey that was. It was a shipwreck, snakebite, just all sorts of trauma, getting to Rome. But now he's in Rome, and he's been there for at least two years by the time he's written the book of Ephesians. So, he calls himself the prisoner of Christ Jesus. Notice he doesn't say that he is a prisoner of Rome. He did not see himself as a prisoner of Rome. He was looking at his imprisonment as just another step in his service to Jesus Christ. And essentially the thought process is this. Paul served Christ with a clear conscience. He had been given a mystery, right? this mystery of the body of Christ, and he preached it. He preached it in the way that he was instructed to preach. He is not able to control how people react to it, which nobody is, right? Sometimes people have varying reactions to a truth that's given to them. And so if he's in prison because of this, it must be where Christ wants him to be. So that is why he is a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And then the last point from verse 1. Prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles. Why is Paul in prison for the Gentiles' sake? Yes, amen. That's part of it for sure. Absolutely. But think about a little bit of the context of where we are in history. The church, as we know it now, has been in existence for 20 to 30 years by this point. Christ has been resurrected and gone for 20 to 30 years. And still Gentiles aren't seen as full members of the body. There's still a lot of hostility, there's still a lot of confusion about whether they need to be brought under the law before they can even be seen as members of the church or not. And this is rampant all over, even in Asia, where Gentiles are a lot more predominant. So in a very real way, the truth that Paul has just revealed in Ephesians 2 is the very teaching that got him in prison to begin with. That we are all one. The law, the former things have passed away. Christ has made all things new. And that all these divisions, these human divisions that we spent thousands of years perfecting, the walls that we built, keeping... Ourselves separated from one another now don't matter in Christ. They're meaningless, and we are one body and one people now. And That was something that was hard to swallow, and it's why he was in prison. So if Paul is this concerned that we understand this truth, that he was willing to spend half a decade in prison for it, I think we should be concerned about it as well. So moving on to verse two and three. If indeed you have heard the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already. So Paul's ministry existed not because of anything great about himself, It didn't exist because of his learning. It didn't exist because he was very qualified to do it. His ministry existed because God had granted him the grace to do it. And so it is with all ministry. Um, I said this first service, and I think it's just as applicable in second. It's a very small chance that on paper... I am the best person to be up here teaching. There are men in this room who have walked with Christ for a lot longer, possibly even as long as I've been alive. He's shown them things that he hasn't shown me yet. They've learned things that I don't know yet. But that's not how God does ministry all the time, is it? God doesn't look around at his church and say, you know, that person's a really strong public speaker. I think they should teach. Or, oh, hey, that person's really great at this. They should do this. No. He does not call the qualified. He qualifies the called, right? Uh, We are, when we serve in ministry, completely at his mercy. We are completely um, under his will. And if we ever try to do things on our own, it's just never going to work out well. And in fact... I always forget I wrote this note, but it makes me laugh every time I do. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, what does Paul say? That God chooses the foolish of the world to shame the wise. So not only might you not be the most qualified on paper, you might be the least qualified. So I'll let you guys decide if that's currently what you're witnessing or not. That's, but please don't tell me afterwards. I... So verse 4. By which, when you have read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. I love this. This is, this is Paul as a teacher. Paul's very focused on making sure that the readers of his letter understand the truth of the mystery he just revealed in chapter two. Because ultimately, you can't apply what you don't know. Understanding up here always comes before applying it spiritually, Right? and he, and this is an extraordinarily important thing for the church of the time to apply spiritually so he wants to make very sure that they understand it mentally so verse 4 and then moving on to verse 5 which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed by the spirit to his holy apostles and prophets that the gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. So this was a truth that even the greatest prophets of the Old Testament were not aware of. It's not something that was revealed to anybody. And naturally, in light of that, somebody might ask, who is Paul to reveal this to us? Now, he obviously had some pretty good credentials on paper, uh, but he doesn't, to answer that question, choose to rely on any of those, does he? What does he say? It was been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. Sole focus for him was on the Spirit. True revelation always comes by the Spirit. And so he reiterates that immediately, that truth he's just revealed, moving on to verse 7. Of which I became a minister according to the gift of grace of God, given to me by the effective working of his power. Paul's ministry was completely based on the fact that he had been given a gift. Look Look at the way that he writes that. Of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. All those things, all that training, all those years as a Pharisee sitting under the feet of the most prolific Jewish teacher of his age meant nothing in this context. His ministry was completely because of God's working in his life on his behalf according to the grace he had been given. Verse eight, to me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Again, he's been given this grace. He's not responsible. This is God's work in his life. He's completely dependent upon God. His success is completely dependent upon God. And this, I think, is the attitude of ministry in general. If anyone in ministry loses this sort of humility that Paul has, if they begin to exalt themselves, or if they lose the servant's heart, then they lose the power as well. You might be able to pack out a... Sanctuary to the rafters with people coming to hear what you have to say, because you're an extremely good speaker, but if you aren't working in the power of God, what are you gonna what are you gonna accomplish? Nothing. Verse nine. And to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ. Paul was enabled by God to speak of this mystery. The church, what it meant, was hidden from everyone until being revealed now. And Paul's concern was not only in enlightening the Gentiles, right? or as he says in verse 8, Preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. It's very important for the Gentiles to know that they have a part of this kingdom, an equal part in this kingdom with the Jews. But it's also extraordinarily important for him to convince and persuade the Jews that that is the case as well. So that is his heart here. To make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery. Not just Jews, not just Gentiles, but all of them. Moving on to verses 10 and 11. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, obviously, the... Nature of the church has been hidden from the church up until this point. And I think it's really normal to ask the question, why? Why did God choose to hide it from us, to give us no indication what it was until now that he's revealed it? So this is what verses 10 and 11 are dealing with. The intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church... To the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. What does that mean, principalities and powers in the heavenly places? If any of you guys are familiar with later on in chapter 6 of Ephesians, we know that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers in the heavenly places, right? So this is encompassing all spiritual, all creatures of the spiritual plane. Angels who are working for God, but obviously also... Demons or fallen angels that are not. So essentially, what Paul's saying here is that angels or fallen angels, these principalities, will see the wisdom of God in the miracle of the church and make his wisdom known. Now, the angels will glory in it, glorify God, because they are part of this church, right? They serve the Lord. But the fallen angels or the demons, who have no capacity or desire to glorify God or to praise him, even they will have to acknowledge the amazing wisdom in what God has done. And so what's the reason that God chose to keep this from us until the point in Ephesians were, well, until it was revealed in the church age? For his own glory. That's the reason God does everything. <laughs> Soli Deo Gloria, right? For the glory of God alone. So moving on to verse 12. In whom, talking about Jesus, Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Amen, Amen. yes, absolutely. One of the things that struck me so much about this verse is the constant tension between the Jews and the Gentiles and what did access to God look like in Judaism? You had one man who entered into God's presence once a year, and that's it. And in fact, they tied a rope around his leg in case God chose to kill him for coming into his presence, and so they could drag him back out. So that's the paradigm of Judaism. And now look at our reality, the reality under Christ We have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. We have full access at all times to the creator of the universe. And that is an incredible privilege. And so, Paul wraps up his thought here in verse 13 before he prays. He says, Therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart in my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Basically, what Paul's getting across here is that he didn't have to be in prison. He could have shut his mouth, or he could have preached something that was much more acceptable to the Jews, and all those things would have kept him out of prison. But God had given him this calling, and he preached it faithfully, as he was told. And so this mystery that he was given is wonderful. He considers it wonderful. And the privileges of being a part of the body are awesome. He would never trade them for a second. So he's saying here, do not lose heart in my tribulations for you, which are for your glory. And it's really important to know Kind of the underlying point here, which is the cost for following Christ will always be less than what you get in return. The rewards are always greater. And Paul understood that. And this is really what he's saying is like, guys, like, this is because I serve faithfully. Amen. Hallelujah. Right? Okay. So I'm going to have the worship team come back up, but I just wanted to touch. On what unity means for us now. We've done a pretty good job over the last 2,000 years uh, erasing the uh, distinction between Jew and Gentile. I don't think I've heard that come up at a church meeting in a while. But that doesn't mean that unity is a given in the body of Christ, right? And just look outside the church for a minute at wars, rumors of wars that are happening. Shortages everywhere. Economies in collapse. uh, Riots. You remember last year, all those riots that were going on just constantly in our country. I don't think it's a stretch to convince anybody who's been paying attention at all for the last few years that the world is in disunity. And we know, as his people, that the only solution to the problem of disunity is Jesus Christ. And so if we who have Jesus Christ, are not unified. That's not going to work either. Okay, God's so concerned about unity that he planned it before time began. Christ Jesus was so concerned about unity that he prayed for it, one of the last things he prayed for before they crucified him. And Paul was so concerned about the unity of the church that he's willing to spend five years in prison for having taught it. So what does this unity look like? So really quickly, John 17, verses 20 through 21. This is the prayer that Jesus prayed. My prayer, excuse me, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. (laughs) That is the standard, you guys. The goal is for the church to have as close of a relationship with each other as Christ has with the Father. Uh, how are we doing on that, do you think? So, unity is not a passive activity. It is not enough for us to just say that I'm not destroying unity in the church. I'm just hanging out doing my own thing and I'm not bothering anybody. Right In Ephesians four three, if you were to read on in Ephesians 4, we are in admonished to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Endeavor meaning to be diligent. Unity is not passive. It is active. You have to actively contribute to it. And while most Christians aren't fighting against the unity of the church, that very rarely happens, thankfully. We just aren't doing a whole lot to contribute to it. So the unity of the church is not kept by being silent about the things you disagree with. I think that's, you know, we all have our disagreements in Bible studies and stuff like that. And it's not about just being quiet about it. It's kept by making a concerted effort to build the body of Christ into oneness. It is done by harnessing the gift that God has given you and exercising it to serve one another. So, who you are in Christ, you are who you are in Christ because of what somebody else needs. You exist, you've been gifted and you have been gifted in the way that you have been gifted for the express purpose of serving somebody. And what does that look like? I don't know, that depends on how God is gifting you, what is your calling, how is he calling you? It might look radically different depending on who you are and the circumstances of your life. My encouragement to you, same encouragement to myself, that we be committed to unity, finding those ways to serve one another truly and then build the spirit of Christ. So let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful for you. We're just grateful for the wonderful work you did on our behalf on the cross, Lord, though we do not deserve it, though we offer you nothing in return, Lord, you have lavished your goodness upon us and we praise you for it. Thank you so much, Jesus dying on the cross for us, that we could be forgiven our sins, Lord. Thank you that when we go astray, Lord, you leave the 99 and you come and you find us and you bring us back to the fold, Lord. We just thank you so much for that wonderful truth. We just ask you to please help us to take your word, Lord, plant it deep in our hearts. Help us to be truly sold out for you, Lord. Help us Any wicked way, Lord, any hard soil in our hearts, Lord, we ask you to till it up. Help us to see those things that hinder your work in our life for what they are, just absolute nonsense, Lord. Help us to focus on the things that truly matter, the eternal things, Lord. And so we thank you for your patience on our behalf. We thank you for your incredible kindness to us, Lord. We thank you that you pour out your love to us in an abundance we can never fully comprehend. Lord, you are good, you are great, and we love you. And we just ask these things in Christ's name, amen.